You are listening to The Dynasty Diner, a proud member of the Dynasty Sports Empire family of podcasts. Welcome to the Dynasty Diner. I'm your co-host, Brett Siegel. And here at the diner, we like to sit around the proverbial table and talk all things Dynasty and Keeper Leagues for all the fantasy sports. We are still focusing on baseball right now since it's draft season, but we have some great episodes coming up for all the other sports in the future. We didn't forget about basketball, football, golf, or hockey. We do want to extend a warm welcome to all of our new listeners and a big thank you to all those returning. Had some great support so far, and we'd want to give a special shout out to Vin Rock, who gave us our first rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Vin writes, and I quote, I'm obsessed with Dynasty Leagues and I needed this. No one else listens, so I can steal all the advice from myself. Just kidding. Everybody listen. Vin, be sure to tell all your friends about us and make the league just a little bit more competitive. It's a lot more fun that way. We'd also like to throw some support to our other Dynasty Sports Empire family of podcasts. They are Quality Starts, Football Day, and DSE The Podcast. Find them wherever you happen to be listening to ours, and be sure to subscribe to them so that you can be notified about when all the new episodes come out. You can also find all of us at DynastySportsEmpire.com, On the top of the navigation, you'll see a spot for blogs, which is where all of our written content is, and podcasts, which is where you'll find all the podcasts I just mentioned. Now, episode one was a lot of fun, but it was also quite scary. We're new at this. We're figuring it all out. We're going to continue to get better. We are really excited about the show that we put together for you today. We're going to be focusing on roster construction today, and we're going to hit upon topics like Format, scoring, hitter-pitcher roster weights. be nice if I could speak today. We're going to look at uh, roster scarcity when you're drafting. Uh, Also, when you're reaching for that player that you love so much versus the best available and how that affects your roster construction and draft. We're going to talk about starting pitcher and relief pitcher strategies. And also, of course, we will be offering our dish of the day, for you to chew on before you leave the diner. Time to introduce our co-host and break down roster construction. Welcome, Chris Zelaya, our DSE content editor and baseball commissioner. How are you doing today, Chris? Doing all right. Outstanding. I know that you and I are both in the uh, TGFBI uh, Experts League, which is a five-by-five roto. It's not Dynasty, but uh, we are competing against 400 of our favorite fantasy sports analysts from around the country. How are you doing in that? I'm doing better than I thought I was going to do, honestly. Um, It's been eight years since I've done a redraft-type league, so it's a different mentality. It's also been eight years since I've done a 5x5 standard Roto two-catcher league, so it was an adjustment, but I think I'm holding my own so far. I also, last year was my first year in TGFBI, and 
going into last year, I had not participated in a five by five roto in almost close to 20 years, a traditional five by five roto. And I had not done redraft in probably five to eight years or well, maybe five years going into last year. And I know I learned a lot. Um, I think that I have learned enough coming into this year, not to make the same mistakes, but I've already made one really bad, uh, strategy decision when it comes to roster construction. Imagine that. It happens. And I mean, it, it sneaks up on you a lot quicker than you expected to most of the time. Well, I know I had to play the room as far as my draft goes and my room is not drafting like everybody else. So the, that's the biggest problem when you're dealing with quote experts is uh, we all think we know better and everybody was zigging when they should have been zagging. So I started to zag while everybody was zigging and I had the 12th pick out of 15. I should have gone pocket aces strategy. I did not. I loaded up on hitters and now I am scrambling to find both starting and relief pitchers. But that is a perfect example of why roster construction is so important i agree so when we were talking about this episode and we came up with the idea of roster construction we were thinking it was only going to be one segment and we were trying to come up with other segments for me all the other topics i came up with all led right back to roster construction how about yourself yeah me too like the more i started thinking about the episode I kept thinking, okay, roster construction, but what else? And hitters and pitchers, but that has to do with roster construction. And then I started thinking, all right, well, draft strategy, but again, that has to do with roster construction. So everything kind of circled back around to this central focus of roster construction. Yeah, we could have easily done five hours on this. Don't worry, audience. We are not going to bore you that badly. I know that I could speak for five hours on this, but nobody wants to hear that. I mean, I could probably match you in the five hours, but again, who would want to listen to the two of us talk for the next five hours straight? Yeah, so we're going to try to keep this under an hour, no promises. I think the first thing about dealing with roster construction is understanding or at least knowing what format you're playing in and the scoring system that's being used. Chris, why don't you talk to us about some of the different formats and scoring systems and we can understand why that is so important just to even begin a conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So my personal favorite is a point scoring system. Head-to-head points is basically my bread and butter. I, I, that, that's what I prefer to play. That's what I am most like uh, geared to play. And most of my predictions or projections rather – are for points leagues, but there's also roto leagues or head-to-head category leagues, which is basically a head-to-head roto league. So understanding the type of league that you're in, and then when you're talking about roto or, or category leagues, you need to understand what categories are being counted. It's not necessarily a standard league. It's not going to be a five by five. In in DSC, we use a six by six and we change it up a little bit, getting rid of average and adding an OBP for the hitters. So to look at the scoring or to look at the rules before you start making your projections is a big part of knowing how to set up your projections for this particular league that you're going to be joining. Yeah, I agree completely. As a matter of fact, I recently wrote an article on the 
Dynasty Sports Empire site. For anybody that's interested, you can go check it out at DynastySportsEmpire.com. Navigate to the blogs tag, navigation tag up on the top of the page, and you can pull that down. Pull down baseball. You'll find lots of articles from Chris and myself there among some of the other talented writers that we have. But I did a I did an article about knowing your format and scoring because that factors into player evaluation. And I'll give you the perfect, well, I'll give you not the perfect, but I'll give you the example. One of the examples I used inside the article, Juan Soto in a traditional five by five, I believe, because I'm not looking at my article, but I believe he was first or third in overall rankings in in the DSC format, yeah, in traditional, he was third. In our DSC 5x5, five five, he was first overall. In total points, this gets a little tricky. In total points, I believe he was 11th in total points projected scored, but he was 21st in value because you have to take into account other players that have multi-position availability, and you know it's not just all about scoring. So knowing your system and knowing your format and knowing those things really factors in. Let's also take an example of uh, Aldeberto Mondesi. In a five by traditional five by five roto, he is extremely valuable because he's probably going to get 20 more steals than everybody else over the course of the season. But in a total points league, he's almost worthless, in my opinion, in terms of rostering. No, I agree. In the Roto League, Mondesi is a hands-down top tier, tier one, tier two type player that needs to be drafted and rostered in those type of leagues. When you start talking total points and you start adding in all of the ancillary or, or secondary categories that you don't have to worry about in Roto, Mondesi drops down quickly. Add in the fact that he's not getting very much younger he, in my rankings, drops down even further. He's realistically a tier three, tier four, possibly tier five type player in a points league versus a tier one, tier two player in a roto league. So understanding the format is huge when it comes to knowing the player and the league that you're drafting in. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, the argument, I, the, the example I usually have in arguments with other people is, in, in a lot of formats, Aaron Judge gets overvalued. Um, his home runs are extremely useful in a roto league. His strikeouts are extremely detrimental in a head-to-head points league. And when you factor those things in, they make a difference. And you've got to know, like we've, we've been saying, you have to know your format. You need to know your scoring system. You need to know how all these different things come into play. I agree 100%. And Aaron Judge is, in a lot of ways, the perfect example. Yes, he can hit 45 home runs, but yes, he's going to strike out 200 to 250 times in the course of a season if he's healthy for the entire season. So Aaron Judge in a Roto League is a beast, but in a points league, he's no better than an average outfielder, in my opinion. Well, think about it. In DSE, total point scoring, a home run, I believe, is worth 10 points. Is that correct? Uh, it, it might be. It's either 10 or 6. Okay, well, it, 
Yeah, I, actually, I think it's six, and then you've also got to factor in total bases, whatnot. Let's just call it. Let's just say it's worth six points for argument's sake right now. Now you've so let's say he hits forty home runs, so that's um two that's uh two hundred and forty points, right? Yep. Is my math yep. good? Okay, that's two hundred and forty points. Let's say he strikes out two hundred times, he just earned you forty points for the whole season, the entire season. Of 162 games, he got you 40 points in a differential between home runs and strikeouts. How valuable is that? Not very at all. I mean, that, that's yeah. the realistic nature of what Aaron judges in a total points league. And then when you start factoring in the fact that his batting average isn't going to be all that great, and he doesn't really add to many other categories. Yes, he's going to get you RBIs. Yes, he's going to score you a fair amount of runs. Uh, he might hit a couple of grand slams, but not many. He's not a great defender, and he's going to cause some errors even in the outfield. So there are a lot of other categories you need to consider in a points league that you don't have to look at in roto leagues. So, yeah, again, in a roto league, Aaron Judge is a great player. You want to draft him early, and you want to make sure he's on your team, and hopefully he stays healthy for you. In a points league, he can slide deep into a draft before he's even considered because of all those ancillary areas where he's going to gain negative points on top of all the other positive points he's going to get. His net at the end of the season isn't going to be anything great. And that's what you have to understand about the difference, the biggest difference between a points league versus a roto league. I know that in a startup league, I love it when in a head-to-head point startup league, when somebody else in Dynasty takes Aaron Judge or an Alberto Mondesi because then I go, thank you for not making me have to figure that out when it comes down to me 10 rounds from now. I agree. Uh, I actually make it a point to not draft or not even look at these these two particular guys until way past I know they're going to be drafted. So they don't even usually make my lists. In the off chance that we hit round, say, 20, and neither one of them have been drafted yet, and I have to actually look at both those two guys. I'm like, all right, well, we're far enough along in the yeah, draft. But within their, but within their own tiers, they're not that. No, bad. the problem is you and I have them in such a lower tier than everybody else. We we breathe that sigh of relief by the time it gets to that. Exactly. Tier. And the couple of orphans that I bought, and I, over the last few years, I've bought numerous orphans. I've owned a few shares of both those players. And I've actually made it a point to sell all of those shares. Now, I didn't sell cheap. I sold based on perceived value more than on actual value. And what I mean by that is I basically just floated the concept in our league room saying, hey, Aaron Judge is available. Make me an offer. I didn't say what I wanted. I didn't say what I expected. I just let people approach me about if they were interested, great. And the ones that were, I let them make an offer. And then I countered if I didn't think the offer was good enough. But I wanted to see where they had their perceived value of Aaron Judge. I know what my value was. So if they were going to overpay based on what I felt his value was, I was interested. If they weren't, if they were on the same level as I was, it was going to be a lot harder of a negotiation. Luckily, I was able to sell all my shares of Aaron Judge across the leagues that I had them in based on their perceived value and my actual value. So in my book, 
I won all of those trades. I know I'm going to bring up trades a little bit later. That is uh, actually the subject of my dish of the day. So I'll let you all chew on that when we get there. I do want to move to uh, hitter and pitcher weights and how all the things we just discussed in terms of format and scoring affects hitter and pitcher rate uh, uh, weights. How do you look at that? So hitters and pitchers, um, when we're talking about weights uh, in terms of a format. Yeah, we should probably explain that to the listeners, what we're talking about, because maybe uh, maybe we're taken for granted they know what we're speaking about. Yeah, so a weight, um, when I'm talking about doing like a weighted average on something, uh, uh, I'm basically looking at over the course of multiple seasons, let's say three seasons, I'm going to weigh each season based on a percentage and average them together to get me a combined basically average of the three seasons. So I do a very simple five, three, one weight over the last three years. I'll take last year's numbers and multiply it by five, the season before multiply it by three, and then two seasons before and keep it the exact same point total, take the three of them together and then take the average of the three. That is a standard weight that I use without making an age adjustment. And I do make age adjustments based on how old the player is, whether they're just getting into their prime, they're in their prime, or they're past their prime. So anybody going up to the age of 27, I basically give them a, a bump in, in, in their weighted average. Between the averages of 27 and 30, 31, I won't add or subtract to it. And then after the age of 31, I'll start to gradually reduce their weighted average because of a decline that is going to be happening in their in their just general performance. That's what I mean when I talk about weighted averages. Now you want to hear something funny? I, I took our initial discussion about hitter pitcher weights completely different. So I, I want to tell everyone what I talk about when I say weights when it comes to roster construction because we're on completely different pages, which is not a bad thing because they both round back to the same place. What I'm looking at weights is knowing your format, knowing your scoring. Pitchers and hitters have different values within a scoring system and a format. Some formats, your positions are limited. In some dynasty leagues or keeper leagues, your your rosters are unlimited in terms of what you can roster. You're not mandated to have two catchers or you can have as many outfielders as you want. You can have as many pitchers as you want sitting on your bench. What I mean by hitter pitcher weights is how much of a percentage off of 50, 50, am I going to give to hitters or am I going to give to pitchers? And what I do is I try to look at the scoring and I looked at the projected scoring for the upcoming season in a, in a redraft league version bubble. And I determine where that value is in a standard five by five roto dynasty league. I'm looking at more hitter heavy weights and in a uh, dynasty total points head to head, I'm looking at more pitchers weighted, meaning I might go for a 60 40 split for pitchers versus hitters in head to head points. I might go 60 40 in favor of hitters in a roto league. And that is going to set up my determination for how I draft because I value 
hitters or pitchers more valuable than the other in a given so is it fair to assume that even though we're taking different approaches at what a weight means we're basically coming to the same end result because exactly that's why i said it's going to round back to the same place but it's interesting that we approach it from a completely different perspective but we end up uh, yeah because when i look at the total average points over the course of a three-year uh, over the course of a three-year career, it usually ends up being the exact same re- end result. So in, in points leagues, pitchers usually end up doing better. And in roto leagues, hitters usually end up doing better based on how I evaluate. We, we both agree. Yeah, we, we yeah. both agree. And it's, and it's pretty close to the 60-40 split that you had mentioned. In roto leagues, because I look at a six by six more than a five by five hitters take a slight edge. It's more of a 55, 58 to 45, 43 kind of a split. Whereas in points leagues for me, it's like a 60 to 62 to a 40, 38 split kind of an idea, but it's basically the same kind of an idea that I'm looking at that in points leagues, pitchers, yes, they do score more points on average. And in Brodo leagues, hitters do do better. Right. And then I also, once I've determined how much I'm going to weight towards pitchers or hitters within the individual pitcher or hitter category, I'm also taking into consideration uh, the age of the player. You mentioned age 27. I like to use age 30. Um, I think the I think between 27 and 30, it's a, it's what I call a null period where they're at their peak and they don't require any adjustment from a uh, statistical standpoint in terms of projection. I think anything leading up to 27, they need that boost. Anything after 30, they need to start taking a hit uh, just because they're going to naturally decline uh, because of age. And I also figure in opportunity. Uh, Some players are going to have a, a quicker path to an everyday starting job. Other players are going to be mired in a in a uh, super utility role you know like a marwin gonzalez as an example is you know a few years ago he was a great player uh, i think it was 2017 when the astros won the world series he could have easily been a fantasy mvp but being stuck in a utility role wasn't getting every day you know he was only playing four to five days a week instead of mm-hmm. six or seven i agree on the age uh up to 27, I do give them a boost. From 27 to 30, I don't really make any adjustments. For pitchers, it's a slightly different timetable. For pitchers, I'll extend that no reduction in points till about 32. But for hitters, around 30, agreed, 31. Agreed here as well. There are exceptions. I mean, like the Nelson Cruises of the world, who at 38 years old is still hitting bombs. Yeah, he's taken a reduction over the last couple of years, and rightfully so, but he's still a beast at the plate. So there are certain exceptions to the rule, but for the standard 30-31 for hitters, 31-32 for pitchers is where they start hitting their decline for me. Um, And then opportunity, absolutely. I mean, a a great example on the flip side would be in Yvonne Hernandez. I'm sorry, Yvonne Herrera, the up-and-coming catcher in the Cardinal system who's going to get an opportunity sooner rather than later because Yanni Molina is not going to play forever. They don't really have that in between guy that is anything to brag about. So don't don't tell Cardinal fans. Cardinal fans can say what they want, but they have a legitimate <laughs> prospect in their system that 
is they're fortunate. No, there's, there's not. not. And I'm not a big catcher fan in terms of prospects. I'm probably harder on catchers than I am on anything else. When I do my rankings every year, I rank the top 50 to 75 catchers for my personal rankings. And I don't like 95% of the catchers on that list, but they're there because there's so many of them and they get drafted so frequently. Yeah, we started to touch on this last week, and I don't think we did a, a, a fair enough job. So I'll bring it up right now. For for me, catchers is a really tough spot from a fantasy perspective because the catcher you want on your baseball team is not the catcher you want on your fantasy team. The catcher you want on your baseball team is the defensive catcher who can handle a pitching staff, call a game, and handle the the defensive shifting and know what's going on all throughout the game, and you're not necessarily concerned with his hitting. The catcher you want in fantasy is the slugger who basically struggles to maintain his job every day because he can't handle the pitching staff or understand the hitters that are coming to the plate. Gary Sanchez is a perfect example of that. He could not understand why he was pulled in the um, playoffs and was given days off because he felt his bat was good enough to carry the team. And at the end of the day, the Yankees want to win and you can't do it when you have a liability behind the plate. Well, and hold they on. Can't call I'm going to, I'm going to slightly disagree with you on this. Gary Sanchez to me is a useless catcher straight across the board. He is a massive <laughs> liability at the plate and because his swing and a miss is, is gargantuan. Yes, he can. He is not a pitcher friendly catcher. He makes stupid mistakes. He does not know how to call a game. He's not a catcher by trade. He's a first baseman by trade. He's just sitting behind the dish because he doesn't know how to catch. He, he knows the mechanics of it. Tell me how you really feel. In terms of a hitter's perspective, he's got massive swing and miss in his game. He's not, a, he's not even a league average hitter. He strikes out a lot. So for me, Gary Sanchez is somebody I will never roster in any fantasy league ever. Because I just don't, I don't see it. I'm, I'm basically waiting for the day where the Yankees realize that same concept and turn him into a first baseman or a right fielder. The problem is they don't need a first baseman or a right fielder. The only slot is a catcher. No. So if don't. he doesn't get traded and he stays a Yankee, they're always going to be behind the eight ball in that one position. I would rather take a chance on somebody like a Christian Vasquez who's a great defensive catcher, who does decently at the plate, give me that catcher. I will take my chances with that over Gary Sanchez because Christian Vasquez doesn't have the same swing and miss. Yes, he's not going to hit you 30 home runs, but he's going to—he's a do-no-wrong catcher who's going to start 80% of the year. Give me that catcher over a Gary Sanchez in fantasy any day of the week. The reality of a, of a defensive catcher eventually becoming a decent hitter doesn't always happen or materialize the one catcher that comes to mind that has been able to do that in the last uh, recent memory is Travis D'Arno. He was primarily a defensive catcher and only over the last three to five years has really, well, maybe three years has started to hit to his potential. He wasn't there in the very Barring game. injury. Travis is a, is a great fantasy catcher. Um, the problem is that you do always have to consider injury when you associate him to anything in fantasy sports. Um, a, another great example is the Yadi Molina, 
who is a phenomenal defensive catcher, but he can produce offensively. But he's also at the end of his career. I mean, Buster Posey for years was that guy. He was a defensive catcher who you knew was going to start four out of the six games a week. And he, he grew into quite the hitter, but then he also exactly. tapered off. They're yeah. just unpredictable. And they, they go through quite a grind. I mean, that, that's that's tough squatting behind that home plate. For yeah, well, I mean, if you want to in, – in just my lifetime, I think – I don't think I'm far off by saying Joe Maurer might have been the greatest fantasy catcher in in my lifetime just because of what he was able to do at the plate and behind the dish. I mean, until he moved to first base, which in my mind was the decline of Joe Maurer, but as a catcher, he was phenomenal. So let's we've been talking about drafting, and I want to I actually want to pivot just a little bit and move to our next uh, mini topic within roster construction and talk more specifically about drafting. Some of the things we plotted out when we were talking about doing this episode is understanding, in general, position scarcity, uh, reaching, and best available. And I want to start off with position scarcity because I'm having that problem in the TGFBI draft, and it is more so a problem with a dynasty or a keeper league draft than it is a redraft. So... How do you view tiers, when to wait, and when to act in terms of position scarcity? So position scarcity is a very real thing. I mean, you have your top tier or top two tiers at every position. And in certain positions, there's a massive drop-off in terms of production. If I can't get that top guy, and catcher is a great example at that, like JT Ramuto is in a tier by himself. The next tier is, is a couple of names. If you're not willing to pay for the JT real Muto. Okay, fine. I understand that. But then you have to make a decision. Do you grab one of the guys who are in tier two or do you wait? And the weight between tier two and tier three is a massive weight. You're talking about going from Will Smith down to, uh, a Mitch Garver or um, a Dart or a Darton Varsho for this year, at least because he's probably going to lose catcher eligibility after this year. Right, and the difference between those could be anywhere between five and exactly. 10 so that's the question: is based on your draft strategy, are you willing to sacrifice going from a tier one, tier two guy down to a tier three, tier four guy? And it's really based on the position. So look at key positions like second base or shortstop. I will, I will make it a point to grab somebody at second base or shortstop, but I'll let catcher slide because even though I understand there is a position scarcity, there's so few guys at the top of the catcher list that I'll take my chances because I'm going to be with the rest of the league. The three guys that want to take the top three catchers can have those three catchers. And I will grab a, solid bat at a different position while they're grabbing their catcher. And then I'll be with 95% well, of the rest of the league taking the guys who are on tier three at that, at the catcher position. Well, here's how I deal with, with position scarcity in my tiers. First and foremost, I deal with an eight tier system and we always hear analysts talking about tiers, but they very rarely ever tell you how many tiers they have. Personally, I have eight tiers. And what I do is, I find that replacement value player. So if I'm in a 14-team league 
I'm going to look at the first 14 players at that position. I'm going to draw a line. And the first 14 players above that line are above replacement. The next 14 players below that line are below replacement. And then with above and below that line, I split each of those 14 into four tiers. And I, I find where I think the, sometimes I could, if it's a total points league, I can do it mathematically. If it's a roto league, I generally have to do it more so on perceived value, but I will start drawing those lines between first, second, third, fourth tier above replacement and fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth below replacement. And what happens with me is I, I play the draft. I don't go in with a hard cut strategy to draft because it almost never works out for me. And when I think that it's working out for me, it fails miserably. So what happens is, is I will go into a draft and if the eight of the first 14 players drafted are shortstops, whether I wanted to take a shortstop or not, I might be forced to take a shortstop now because I want to make sure I get one of the top 14 shortstops. And I don't want to get number 14. He's just replacement value. So when I'm looking at, when, when my pick is coming up in a draft, I'm looking at how many players are available at what tiers and whatever positions are thin, I will take a second look and determine whether or not I want to grab a player from that position before it thins out even further. I mean, there are, listen, the best available player might be an outfielder, but you, you might be able to wait on outfielders because there's so much depth there in terms of tier one, tier two, and tier three. Whereas you're already into tier four on shortstops. Do you want to risk taking an outfielder and then they're not being an above replacement shortstop for you to draft? Well, I think that has to do team? with reading the room. Uh, and what I mean by that is watch a draft. See if there has been a recent run on shortstops, if there's a run on whatever position you're talking about, because if you see that eight of the top 14 shortstops were taken, it's very likely that the other guys that didn't take a shortstop are looking at the shortstop situation the same way you are. So for me, if that's the case and I, and I can grab a tier well, but, one well, outfielder, I'm going to grab a tier one outfielder and I'm going to wait, until the traps flips back around for me, and then I'll grab my shortstop on the flip side. I'm going to tell you why that doesn't work for me. Because shortstop is such a productive position now in fantasy baseball, which ironically was not the case 20, 30 years ago. When the Ozzie Smiths ruled the position, they were not hitting shortstops. They were, there were no Trevor Story, Francis Lindors uh, to deal with back then. But I'm going to tell you why it doesn't work for me now. It is typically the case that I see that a person takes that shortstop in the first round and the third round comes along and they're looking at best available and it's another shortstop and they know they can plug that shortstop into an infielder position, a general infielder position. And then what happens is, is now everybody starts taking their second shortstop before I've even taken my first shortstop. And if I blink and I blink too long, there's no shortstops left for me to take. And it is frustrating. And then on top of that, I can't, the, here's the guy that I don't like when drafting in a room with me. 
He'll take his third shortstop, which is a bench player, because he's filled all of his other utility and, and infielder uh, positions. He'll take that third shortstop before I can even take my second. And now he's drafting bench players before I can even finish drafting my starters. So if I'm in a league with that guy, I would actually smile and say, okay, draft your bench player. Um, That's fine. I'll I'll, I'll get him from you later on. That is fine. If it's it's a position you don't need, it's fine. If it's a position you don't need, if it's a position you need and you didn't read the scarcity, right. And you allowed it to get past you, you're going to be in a world of hurt. You're going to be forced to make a trade and get rid of a prospect that you really, really like in order to make a run at the playoffs because let's listen for me, for me to be better than your team, I have to be better at every position. That's my goal. I don't look at it as a whole. I look at it by position by position. I need my shortstop to be better than your shortstop. I need my right fielder to be better than your right fielder. I need my, my closer to be better than your closer. And if, you're hogging all of the shortstops. I'm at a severe disadvantage moving forward. And I have to, I'm being forced to make a trade to play catch up. And so, I don't like that. Again, I'm going to disagree with you slightly on this. I don't necessarily need every one of my position players to be better than your position players. I need my total team to simply either outscore you or collect more stats than you in the, in the course of a week. So I don't care if I have a higher-ranked first baseman, second baseman, shortstop, third baseman, whatever. As long as my guys collectively can figure out a way to score more points or collect more stats than you in the categories that I need, that's really all I'm concerned with. And I'll give you a great example. In the TGFBI league that I'm in, League 11, there is one – actually, there's three, four – there's – four leagues or four teams in my league that don't have a third baseman at all on their entire roster. And we are currently in round 19. I have three third basemen on my roster. You're that guy. I don't <laughs> yeah, like exactly. You. But <laughs> I went with best available on the board and I was looking at, because it's a Roto league, I was looking at counting home runs, RBI, stolen bases, whatever, whatever the categories are. And I'm looking at their team, and they've got each one of those three teams without a third baseman has got one, two, three, four, five, six, five to seven outfielders. I've got three. But I also have position flexibility on my team that I have four guys that are eligible in multiple positions, all of which could be outfielders. But see, they made they made the mistake. They made the mistake that I said they shouldn't make. They're rostering bench players let's so there's a guy with seven outfielders without a a third baseman this this is exactly the the reason we're having this conversation why are you not you why is that guy drafting a bench outfielder before rostering a starting third baseman i don't understand that philosophy why why do people draft bench players before they draft starters I will never, ever, ever understand it. And I don't care how smart someone thinks they are. I have never heard an argument to convince me that it is a better. No, I agree with you. I I think that you need to fill your lineup first. If they're, if you're nine tenths of the way filled on your lineup, 
and the next available player would technically be a bench spot, then I'm okay with drafting a bench spot before you fill your lineup. I'm okay with drafting the bench spot if that player has multi-position eligibility. If that player is okay, is is plays both third base and left field, you don't need him at either. But because he can play at either, I, I feel it's okay to 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 grab that third third baseman. Let's say in your case, because he can play outfield for you on a given day. And that's and that's another thing that we haven't really discussed. There are some leagues that have daily roster lineup changes available and other leagues that do no, weekly lineup roster changes. I agree. And and to that be fair, of my three third basemen, one of them does have multi-position availability. So one of them is Ryan McMahon from the Colorado Rockies, who's technically first base, second base, third base, outfield eligible. So I have him in my I have him in my outfield because I don't need him at first base. I got Matt Olson at first base. I don't need him at third base because I have Chris Bryant at third base. I don't need him in my corner infield because I have Brian Anderson in my corner infield. So by default, he became my outfielder because I also have a second baseman and the middle infielder already. So, yes, I have three third basemen, but one of my three third basemen has so many eligibilities that he's in the outfield that currently but i grabbed him specifically because he's gonna hit 25 home runs he's gonna get a couple stolen bases he's gonna hit a decent batting average he's gonna drive in a fair amount of runs he's gonna score a couple a fair amount of runs but the gold mine is he's eligible for different positions and in a roto league that's massive in a points league that's massive but in a roto league like this that's tremendous because a 15 team five by five roto with this many experts in it that's what my strategy was going into this league right now we've talking about um position scarcity and and best available but we really haven't touched on the dangers of reaching for your guy i have my own opinion about that what's yours in terms of reaching for your guy i fully understand that you can do your projections, you can do your research in the course of an offseason, and you can fall in love with a guy. You can think this is the next big thing and you need to have him on your roster. I completely and totally understand that. But I slap a massive buyer beware on whoever that guy is. It doesn't matter. If you're willing to put your guy Outside of that guy being a Ronald Acuna Jr., a Juan Soto, a Mookie Betts, a Mike Trout, or a Mike DeGrom, or Jake DeGrom, rather, buyer beware, because you're going to reach for that guy. You're going to think that you're smarter than everybody else in the room, and you're going to grab that guy before anybody else is even looking at him. I agree with you. I am guilty of that 1,000%. I have... In, in, in the last three years, I'm not talking about this year because we play dynasty. So we're, we're looking at a much bigger picture. I have one hitter. That is my guy. I have one pitcher. That is my guy. And they both had off years last year. And one of them's not even going to play this year. My guys, the, the DSC community knows my hitter. My guy is Brian Anderson. I'm a Brian Anderson fan in the same way that I was a Christ. I used to live in South Florida. And I was a Christian Yelich fan when he was with the Marlins. I watched him come up. I watched him hit. I went to the ballpark. And I said to my friends, 
and I, I can find them for you and you can, they will attest to this. I'm sitting in the stands and I'm going and understand he's flanked by Marcelo Zuna and John Carlos Stanton. And I said, Christian Yelich is going to win an MVP one day. He's that good. I, we all kind of knew that Stanton had that ability because of the home runs, but people looked at me and they were like, Yelich is just middle of the road. And I said, no, no, he's better than this team. He needs to leave this team one day and be a better baseball player. And lo and behold, it happened. I feel the same way about Brian Anderson as I did about Christian Yelich. My other guy that I always reach for is Yanni Chiriznos. I am the biggest Yanni Chiriznos fan in the world, but he hasn't put it all together. And he had Tommy John surgery in the offseason, so he's probably not even going to show up. Uh, this year until probably August or September. Basically, this season is a wash. But I'm such a fan that in DSE leagues, I went out before his rookie campaign. I went out and if I had not drafted him, I went out and traded for him in every league and gave up quite a bit to get him because I felt at some point in his career, Yanni Chiriznos is going to win a Cy Young Award. It's just my guy. And last year in TGFBI, I picked Yanni Chiriznos faster or sooner than anybody else of the almost 400 participants. And I picked him earlier by probably two to maybe three rounds than he probably should have went. And I paid a price because he went down with the, with, with the TJ uh, injury last year in the middle of the season. And, you know, I wasted a huge pick because that was my guy and I reached. So I've learned my lesson, and I don't. I have more. similarly. I have a pitcher and a hitter that I I I do love. Um, luckily for me, the hitter is nowhere near major league ready yet. He's a Detroit Tiger. He's probably going to end up at first base, and he's probably about three years away. And the young man's name is Spencer Torkelson. I look at him. Like I look at one half of the old Bash brothers from the Oakland days. I think he's going to be a beast. Take hey, your Jimmy, pick. I mean, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> no steroids involved, but I think he's going to be a, a monster at the plate. I think he's going to be a hands-down slam dunk, no doubt about it, number one overall prospect in the Major League Pipeline in terms of fantasy. He's going to be the guy that basically carries the Tigers on his back for many years. It's about yeah. it's about time they have a homegrown player because their best player in the last 10 years has been Miggy Cabrera, who came over from the Marlins. And I can't remember the last great, and I'm talking It's been a long time. Uh, player they've had. I, absolutely, I agree with you. And I think Spencer Torkelson is going to buck that trend. He's going to be their guy. And he's going to be he, – he might be their Mike Trout, the guy that never leaves the system. And I need I need to to, to main, mention one thing. They've had great players, but they've made the mistake of getting rid of them. Cool. So I do want to mention that. I mean, I believe I believe they had Verlander and Scherzer at one point. Yeah, on their we'll staff. call it the they, Dom Dombrowski screw up. I mean, don't get me started on Dom Dombrowski. I can't stand the man as a GM. I think he's an awful, awful general manager who makes bad deals. He won he two World, World Series, Series for the Miami, Red Sox, and I love so. him for that. But I hate his guts because we're going to suck for the next three years because of the contracts and dead money that are currently on the Red Sox books. Well, I, I know that's getting off topic, but 
I don't believe that we should blame GMs for that. I believe that you blame ownership because at some point owners come into a GM's office or vice versa. GMs get called into the owner's office and they're told it's a win now mentality. Make it happen. Dombrowski is one of the best in the business at the win now mentality. Yes, he is going to ruin your franchise for 10, 15 years no, down the road, but you're going to get that ring. And no, no, I agree. He, he's wants, great at the win now. But the aftermath will make you want to choke yourself because it's a it's a massive rebuild because the dead money that lies on your books for the next several years after he's gone is legitimately scary. And Dombrowski doesn't know how to manage no, that, no, that dead no, money or the, the – I mean, um, look at or, the Tigers eight years after the fact. Look at the Red Sox this year, next year, the year after. They've got dead money on the books that they can't get rid of for two more years. So they're not even going to compete until 2023. The so- I mean, the, excuse me, the Tigers may not compete until 2024 because of the dead money on their books. And those are all Dombrowski deals. Even in the which case, Torkelson, I think, is legit. I will buy him anywhere I can. I own a fair amount of shares of him already, and I will continue to buy him until people realize that he really is the next big thing. In terms of pitchers, my guy is Sixto Sanchez. He reminds, he reminds me of Pedro Martinez. Love, love Sixto. I, I loved Pedro the same Absolutely. way I love Sixto, but... I learned many years ago, I can't reach for my guy. So I missed out on Sixto in the TGFBI by seven picks. He was my two. Oh, should I, men- should I mention that I got Sixto in the TGFBI? And by the way, I was Well, I mean, we're going to make a deal on Roto 6 sooner or later anyway, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have some pieces that Sixto, you'll find attractive not. enough. <laughs> but in any which case, I don't reach for my guy. I, I, I can't bring myself to do it. I learned the hard way years ago that reaching for your guy is only going to cause you heartache. Reaching for your guy in a redraft league isn't necessarily worth it. In a dynasty league, if you want to reach for your guy, at least know that you're going to have to pay the price for a couple of years to reach for those guys. But don't think you're smarter than the rest of the room. Yeah, it's funny. I, I had a conversation. I had a conversation with another analyst that's not in the DSC family recently who just started in the business and they were asking me my opinion because I've only officially been an analyst for a little over a year now. And I said, you know, when, when I was in home leagues and, and I was even doing ESPN and Yahoo leagues and whatnot, I used to be the smartest guy in the room. And now the room's a lot bigger and there's a lot more smart people in the room. And I can't take for granted anymore that I know more than everybody else. The information age has given everybody access to way more information. I used to go out of my way to learn things that nobody else would learn. And now there's so much information available. It's almost information overload. And there are people that know much more than I do now. I agree. I mean, I I was the same way. I did redraft league for years. And then I switched over to keeper leagues, and what I realized was I was behind the eight ball. Like, I knew how to draft a, re- a redraft winner year in and year out. What I didn't know how to do was draft a team that I could keep pieces for for next year that were going to carry me into a second win. So the first time I joined a keeper league, it took me three seasons to actually win that keeper league. But once I figured it out, I won three consecutive seasons in the keeper league. 
so when I made the transition to Dynasty, again, I thought I had an idea of what I was going to do. And then I realized that, wow, I really don't. So it took me three years to figure out how to go from the keeper mentality to the dynasty mentality where I needed to really understand prospects and really understand how age does matter when you're trying to construct a young team to win for the future and win for a long period of time. So, yeah, there are a lot of growing pains when you're going from the redraft to the keeper to the dynasty jumps, basically. Yeah. I have so much more to talk about that subject, but I think that's an episode for another day. What I do want to pivot to now is pitching strategies. In general, I want to look at starting pitcher versus relief pitchers and how we evaluate that. But I want to start this conversation off personally with something that I've noted over the years. I'm a little bit older than most of our listeners, probably. Um, I started going to baseball games and paying attention to baseball in the 70s. Yes, I am that old. And in the 70s, it was not uncommon to have 300-inning pitchers who threw for 300 strikes and won 25 to 27 games. Now, you are lucky if you have a pitcher pitch over 200 innings. You're lucky if he gets over 200 strikeouts. And the average of a top-tier pitcher in terms of wins now is 15. The other thing that I've noticed is back in the 70s and 80s, the percentage of innings pitched between a starting pitcher, between starting pitchers and bullpens was probably a 75 to 25 split with starting pitching pitchers getting 75 percent of the total innings and relievers or the bullpen getting 25 percent. I looked at last year and the year before the ratio now averages approximately 55 45 in terms of starting pitcher innings pitched to bullpens inning pitcher inning bullpens innings pitched and i'll tell you why i bring this up the way i used to draft a team 15 20 years ago i think had a lot to do with that ratio the way you have to draft a dynasty league now or a keeper league now in terms of pitching has to reflect the fact that starting pitchers are not getting the innings that they used to get, and they're not getting those quality starts. They're not getting those wins. And I think that managing your pitching staff today in terms of roster construction is the difference between a playoff team and I, a I agree. I team. think that 15 years ago, you wouldn't even look at a, a player like a Ryan Yarborough, who for the last couple of years was basically an opener. If you would have went back 15 years ago and you would have used the phrase opener in terms of starting pitchers or pitchers in general, people would be scratching their heads saying, what in God's name is an opener? I was scratching my head two, three years ago when the when the, the Tampa Bay uh, Rays started using openers. I was like, what are they doing? And I understand it was a move based on metrics and a move based on sabermetric analysis. But I was like, this isn't going to work. And man, yeah, like because it does over half the teams are doing it now. And even teams, even teams with amazing pitching staffs like the Dodgers, the Dodgers used an opener in the World Series for crying out loud. And they have one of the best top because it works because think about it. I mean, if you, if you boil it all down to brass tacks, how many times do you want an opposing lineup to view your starting pitcher? 
one time through, maybe two times through, depending on how many pitches that pitcher has. I think most starting pitchers, you can see the difference between their second and third time through a lineup. That third time through, you'll see batting averages uh, go from, you know, it might be in the 200s and it'll go to like 350, 400 on that third time through. If the pitcher has two pitches, he's going to look at the lineup once, maybe twice, and that's it. So it really depends on the pitcher and their repertoire. Yeah. And how they can work a lineup. So let's talk roster construction now. Knowing this, how does that affect the way that you build a roster in so, terms of a dynasty? Or over the last couple of years, I basically have a handful of guys that I like for starting pitchers. I focus most of my attention on openers, long relievers, and, and, and eighth inning guys. I do have a couple of closers. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of closers, in, especially in Roto Leagues. I'd rather get the guys that with the holds and that are going to get the great ratios. In points leagues, I'll pick up a couple of closers. But again, I'm more about ratios because guys with great ratios usually end up getting taking over closing roles or getting the closing roles before the end of the season. Absolutely. Closers are just way too um, – closer role is too volatile now. Very few closers can lock that role down. And what ends up happening, like you said, those guys with the ratios, those guys that have that that massive strikeout per nine or strikes per walk ratio and can keep their ERA and their whips down, they're going yeah. to get the and, and that's basically in what I target situations. almost exclusively in Roto Leagues. Like I don't think I've drafted a closer in a Roto League ever, except for TGFBI where I drafted Kenley Jansen. Um, usually the, the ratio guy that I but want that, on those teams. But I, I think it's important to note, we'll go right back to that very first segment. Know your scoring and know your your league rules and know your setups. Because most of the leagues that I play in now, value they, there are points and or scoring uh, numbers for holds. And, you know, if you're going to get points for holds and saves, why not go after those setup guys and they might just get the save job. They might get the closer job. Yeah, and if well, they don't, they're still getting points for you as holds. It, it's only in leagues that don't have yeah, holds. Yeah, that's the that mentality. And, and, and that, you're holds. right. It goes back to knowing the scoring format, knowing the league that you're in. So in this example, in the TGFBI league, there are no holds. It's saves, strikeouts, ERA, whip, wins. Okay. So because of that, I did look at a Kenlin Jansen because in a standard in any DSE league, he's not even on my radar. He's not. He's he's over 32 years old. He's gonna lose the closing job eventually. They have plenty of arms in that bullpen. His ratios are not the greatest, but he is the closer, and he probably will be the closer for the entire duration of the season because they're gonna make him the World Series run. So for a redraft league, yeah, sure. I'll take a chance on them. But the other thing is, is, you know, I was talking about starting pitcher stats changing over the decades. Relievers, there was a time after relievers became a thing where you commonly had relievers getting 30, sometimes even 40 saves a season. Now, if you get a reliever that gets 25 saves in a season, he's top tier. And that's that's two-thirds of what used to be the the the, the watermark. 
And I think that has that that is absolutely yeah, it is. a consideration. You have the to Mariano Rivera's of the world, and I think he might have been the last thirty plus save reliever um, that we may ever see. Are done. You're not going to see relievers like that anymore. You're not going to see closers of that caliber anymore. The best that you're going to hope for is to see a 25 to 28 save guy, and there are a few of them out there who are quality closers but they're not going to be 30 35 40 saves in a season it's just not going to happen most managers are giving the closers that extra day off to rest their arm to save them for later on in the season specifically the postseason because we saw with the yankees and aroldis chapman he was out there day in day out every single day taking the mound four to six outs per game because they wanted to end the game. So managers will give the relievers the time off during the season because they're going to use them in, in the playoffs. One thing I want to hit on, I mentioned earlier in the very the top of the podcast, I mentioned that in a total points league, I believe that it's a 60-40 split. Your, line, your, your total roster needs to be pitcher heavy, weighted towards that 60-40. But within the pitching category, for me, I think all of the value comes at those middle relievers and setup guys. And I'll give you an example. So Jacob DeGrom is arguably one of the top two pitchers in the game. I'd say DeGrom and Cole are arguably the, the top two pitchers in the game right now. And they're both worthy mm-hmm. of first round picks in a dynasty startup. Agreed? Yeah. Even, even Cole at his age is worthy of that. Now, in a total points league, DeGrom's going to get you – I, we can argue this point, but let's just, for argument's sake, DeGrom's going to get you 800 points over the course of a season. I'm not including some wacky, crazy bonuses, but he's going to get you 800 points in the course of a season. Now, your best hitter is only going to get you 600. So already, pitchers are worth more than a hitter in general terms. Yeah. DeGrom is going to cost you a first-round draft pick, correct? And DeGrom is only going to get 15 wins. He's only going to get 185 to 200 strikeouts, but we'll be, we'll, we'll, we'll be, let's just call it 200. He's going to get you 15 wins, 200 strikeouts, and um, he might get you about the same amount of quality starts, depending on what your league rules are in terms of, you know, 15 quality starts, maybe 18. But here's the, and the only reason that's even less now is because managers are not letting pitchers go six innings to even qualify for a quality start these days. But here's my argument. I can get two relievers in the last two rounds of a draft that are going to each get me approximately 400 points each. Now, it's a total points league. You made the argument before. The only thing that matters is getting more points than your opponent during the course of the week. So all things being equal over the course of a season, you could spend first-round draft capital on a Jacob deGrom and get that 800 points, or you can spend a – 25th and 28th round draft pick on a middle reliever that are both going to get you 400 points and you've now made the same amount of points with those two guys the only thing you're the only thing you're not taking into consideration with that argument is jacob Degrom is going to score you on average say 21 to 25 points per start a reliever 
Yes. A reliever. Even even I know where you're even going a, with this and I a, did take let's it into just say a, a round twenty five pick reliever is gonna get you on average say five five to six points per start. Or five points five per appearance. Yeah, but if on they average get, they're gonna they get, get you between five bowl, to six, maybe seven points per appearance. So in the course of a week, the Grom is going to get one, maybe two, Correct. but on average, it'll be one start a week. Exactly. So he gets you 25, maybe 30 if he has you a good three day. times on the course of a week on okay, average. Now, Figure I'll every other day. Why, right. So that's, so let's just say he averages five points. So he's going to get you 15. The other guy is going to get you 15 because he's going to pitch three times in a week. Now, those two relievers just got you 30 points. DeGrom's probably going to get you 25 to 30. And I'll tell you why the relievers, why I bone up on relievers. You have in DSC, again, you've got to know your scoring and you got to know your rules. In DSC, we have five starting pitcher spots. We have four reliever spots and we have two general pitcher spots. What I do is I target those relievers that are swing men that have starting pitcher eligibility. On a given day, I'm only going to have one, maybe two starting pitchers out of my entire roster that is going to get a start. I'm only, you know, those DeGroms and those Buellers and those Garrett Coles. They're, you know they're going to get the start. They only happen once if you're lucky twice a week. Generally speaking, on a given day, you have five starting pitchers and only two of them are actually making starts. If I could put a reliever who has starting pitcher eligibility into that starting pitcher slot. And I use those two general pitcher categories for relievers because you never know when a reliever is going to be used. So on a given day, right, we have 11 pitching positions. On a given day, I try to have eight relievers in my lineup because, like you said, the only thing that's important is more points. If I have eight relievers that are all getting between three and five points and let – I'm going to be making 40, 35 points from my relievers. That starter is only going to get me 25 to 30. I'm already ahead of the game by by massively putting relievers into my lineup. Oh, I agree with you. Anytime you can find a relief pitcher who has starting pitcher eligibility and you can draft that player, you're already ahead of the game for that exact reason, that you're going to be able to accumulate that many more points or add to that many more categories in Roto Leagues because you found yourself a player that has multi-position eligibility, which is the next strategy that I went into As every a pitcher, single draft is, I've ever done, yeah. done in DSE or in the TGFBI draft is position flexibility is key. Because if you can turn a single position player into a multi-position eligibility, that's gold. So far beyond anything that we can ever stress in the course of any podcast where you can ever fathom, anytime you can take a player and have him eligible in multiple positions, in just this one example, a relief pitcher who you can slot into a starting pitcher spot. So on a day where you have no starting pitchers who are actually pitching Starting today, if you can load up those spots with relief pitchers who may or may not enter the game, it's that many more points that are going to help you at the end of the week or in that day to try to get more points than your opponent. Because at the end of the day, that's that's the bottom line. You want to win. And yet, and yet I speak to other people 
in our leagues when I'm making trades and they do not value relief pitchers. There is, uh, I'm not going to call this gentleman out. There's one guy who happens to be very successful in DSC that I had this very discussion with him recently and he kept talking up closers and, and starting pitchers. And I said, what about middle relievers? What about setup guys? And he said, I'm not interested. They have no value to me until they reach that closer role or if they break out of being a swing guy and break into the rotation. And I'm like, you're miss you're missing a huge opportunity by not rostering them. I know a fair amount of guys every opportunity. You know, in DSC and then in, in, in other ways also that have that same mentality. Here's what I'll say. Put me in a league with any one of those guys. I will gladly use that weakness, and it is a weakness on their part, to my advantage. Because anytime you can figure out a way to get more points on your team, you're going to win at the end of the day. And that goes for hitters equally as it does for pitchers. Because if you can find the Ryan McMahons who are eligible at first base, second base, third base, outfield, and slot that person into a different position where maybe you don't have a guy starting that day at a certain position, you're going to score that many more points. And again, you're going to collect enough points to win the week. And that's really all you're concerned with is winning the week so that you can continue to advance in the standings. Yeah. I want to move off pitching now because we're running extremely long from where I wanted us to be. And that's no disrespect to you or I or our listeners, but at a certain point, no one wants to listen to us for five hours talk about roster construction. So I do want to move along to uh, our dish of the day, which is our uh, segment here at the Dynasty Diner where we can chew on something, some insight that you and I both bring to the table. So I would like to begin dish of the day. And for my dish of the day, I want to talk about trade equity. I want to talk about trades. This is one of my pet peeves, and I'll explain that in a moment, and I'll try and keep this one short because we are going over. But in Dynasty and Keeper Leagues, you have to work with your other owners on a long-term basis. It's not redraft where you're just trying to win for this year, and it's okay to take advantage of your of, of another owner in a, in a lopsided trade. For me, personally, I have to approach it from a more uh, morally balanced or ethical standpoint. I need trades that are going to benefit both of our teams for a long and lasting relationship. If I have to burn a bridge on a trade and I can never trade with that person again, and that has happened to me in, in DSC even, I, I, it, it upsets me that I can't work with that person ever again. What it really comes down to for me is you have to know your trading partner. For me, the big thing is, is there are owners that like blind offers. There are owners that like trade negotiations. I am one of those guys that enjoys trade negotiations. I do not like blind offers. For the most part, sometimes I don't even see the blind offer because it's not coming to me on, on Slack in a communication. It's coming to me on fan tracks as an actual trade offer. And I don't always read. I get, I get 200 emails a day that I have to sift through. And if I don't see the email that you made me a trade offer, 
it could sit there for a day or two and then expire. And for me, I, I want to have that negotiation, but I want that negotiation to be as such that both teams are going to benefit in some way from this trade. And then you have to deal with the fact that everybody has different evaluations. I recently got a trade offer in a Roto League. There was a guy that went out in a discussion group and said, Mookie Betts is available. Well, I'm no dummy. Mookie Betts is a pretty good player, happens to play on my favorite team, and I'd be an idiot not to say that I was interested. So I reached out to the owner and I said, I'm interested. Take a look at my line. Take a look at my roster. I got some things going on today. Make me an offer. Because he said he wanted two players in return for, for Mookie Betts. I said, okay. So he comes back to me and he goes, I want Juan Soto and another player or prospect to be determined in our discussions. And I was like, okay, we're, let's just forget about this now. I don't want to offend you, but I have Juan Soto rated higher than Mookie Betts and Roto. So we're not even going to discuss a second player or a prospect because I'm not going to give up a, a better player for Mookie Betts. And then you want somebody else, but I've had some crazy offers. And I, I think that you have to be realistic in your evaluations and you have to be equitable in your offers. I agree. If you're gonna um, go last when I first entered DSC, one of the first people I traded with in DSC was, was Paul. Um, and it's funny because he approached me about a trade and he said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that you and I are in a lot of leagues. I mean, I, I combined him and I are probably in a little over 20 leagues together. He's like, so it doesn't benefit me to screw you in any trade, just like it doesn't benefit you to screw me in any trade. So I'm always going to offer you a fair trade because I need to be able to work with you. And I said, I said, great. I said, we're on the same page because we're, we are in a lot of leagues. Together, exactly. And I don't, I, this is true. There, there aren't, but there but are owners. That's that what separates that a great philosophy. owner from an owner. That's just here for today. There are plenty of owners out there that don't care about the rest of the league. They're only out for themselves. Which is fine. I mean, if it works for you to win a title and win a league, okay, fine. But can you continue to do it? I also want to add, I think trading is different preseason than it is at the trade deadline. At the trade deadline, if I'm making a move to try and win a league, I'm willing to, to give up prospects. I'm willing to give up my future for a win today. And I know that those trades are not going to necessarily be balanced it. in my favor because I'm looking at a short-term effect and a long-term effect. Trades in the preseason or be before the All-Star break. I try to wait till really the trade deadline to, to make most of my deals in the leagues where I know I'm rebuilding because I know I'm going to get a better deal at the trade deadline for the player in a win-now situation than I will. Which is why I cannot offer you what what Trevor Bauer what Trevor Bauer his work D27. Uh, is it D24 or D27 that you you and I talked about him in? Yeah, D27. I did look at your roster and I looked at mine and I said. Right now, I can't make a deal for Bauer because it's not equitable. Come the trade deadline, and one, and I'm pushing for a playoff win. I might, which is why I'm holding on Bauer, Bauer until the trade deadline. Just I have every intention in the world of trading Trevor Bauer in D27 this year, but 
I'm not an idiot. I'm going to wait to the trade de- deadline. I will wait to the day of the trade deadline until I make that decision and pull the trigger because I know I will get the best offer from whoever is going to make a push in D27. Now, granted, the team that I have is not ready this year. But if by some miracle they manage to find themselves in the hunt, I will trade off every piece of the team this year because I know the return on it at the deadline will be worthwhile for me next year to actually make a legitimate push because I have holes in my lineup. I know I do. I see it. So I will wait until the trade deadline in any league where I am rebuilding, and I will float it out there. These are the guys I have available. Anybody who's making a push, hit me up. Here's what I want in return. I want prospects. I want picks for next year. Yeah. So let's move off of my dish of the day. I do. Uh, My dish of the day is being able to find a gem on a quote-unquote bad team. What do I mean by that? You can look at teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Baltimore Orioles. They are projected to be the two worst teams in, in the major leagues this year. That doesn't mean there aren't talented players that will help you in fantasy on their teams. Now, you can go to a party and challenge your friends to name three players on either one of those two squads, and you might win that bet because either one of those two squads, they don't have very many notable names on them. But the notable names they do have are players that can help you in fantasy. For example, Colin Moran is a legitimate 20-home run upside first baseman for the Pittsburgh Pirates. That's legitimate. Austin Hayes will hit you a decent amount of runs, get you a decent amount of stolen bases for the Baltimore Orioles. Trey Mancini, coming off of a a cancer-ridden 2020 season, is going to hit you 20 home runs, 25 home runs if he has a great year. They both have starting pitchers. They both have relief pitchers that will do fairly well in terms of ratios, innings pitched, and strikeouts. Just because a team is bad on paper does not mean they don't have pieces that they will they, that you can't not draft in your fantasy team. By that same mentality, discounting an entire team like the Houston Astros because they quote-unquote cheated in a season, no, don't quote. No, wait, don't quote. I'm going to say quote unquote because I don't caught. necessarily believe it's the entire team unquote. was necessarily it's behind it. it. Yes, the team <laughs> cheated, but I'm a Red Sox fan. <laughs> they cheated. I'm a Dodger so, I mean, fan. They cheated. Yeah, they well, cheated too. I mean, too. we're going to agree to disagree on, on that part of it. But the bottom line is that just because a player plays for a certain <laughs> team doesn't mean that they can't help you on your fantasy squad. And, and that's that's the point of the dish is I know don't discount the Colin yeah. Morans, the Austin Hayes, the the Keegan Akins, the Richard Rodriguez, the Mitch Kellys of the world because Santander is an interesting case. I think hey, he's going to be traded Santander. from the Orioles, maybe even before the season starts, but definitely by the trade deadline. I think he ends up on a different team. I think he's real. I think he's sneaky good. I don't think people realize how good he is. I, I don't know that he, it's going to take him probably another two to three years to put up the numbers. I think he's capable. I think of, he ends but, up. But honestly, I was hoping he ended up on the Rays, 
But I think there's he's going to end up there by the end of the season. I think he's a great fit in the Rays organization. I think that's where he should be playing. He's in a bad lineup. He's on a team that I question whether or not they have a, the ability to mold young talent. Um, the Orioles just have not done it right at all, in my opinion. I think they have a long way to go in terms of developing talent, but that's neither here nor there. I'm not a GM, and I'm, I'm not a scout. I think that he's going to be a great fantasy player, a great baseball player. I just think he's currently on the wrong team. And he's producing at a decent level in spite of the fact he's on the wrong team. I think you put him in a team like the Rays organization or the Miami Marlins organization that has a lot of young talent and has a knack for developing the young talent, and he thrives and is able to hit his expectation, those are ideal landing spots for him, I think. And I think that's ultimately where he does end up. But even still, take a flyer on a Santander because he's going to get traded. The Orioles don't have any need for him at the moment. He's already in the majors. He's They're hoping he does well in spite of the fact the team is garbage. And I think he ends up on another team and next year can help you. So in the Dynasty League, it makes perfect sense to collect your shares of him now. Yeah, the only thing that I would add to finding gems on a bad team, and we might have actually touched upon it, is for me, it's seeing those guys that pass the eye test and you think, well, and like we said, if they're on a different team, they're a lot better player as far as fantasy production goes. And I think that really is my only my only source of finding gems on bad teams. Uh, the only other thing that I will say, and this is kind of sad and pathetic, sometimes play MLB The Show on my PlayStation. And I, I've got to admit that I play Road to the Show and – I get stuck in the minor leagues and I, I start batting around uh, in lineups where I start seeing other players that start performing well in MLB the show. And I go, you know, if this guy gets to the major leagues, he might be pretty good. And I'll start drafting people that I find in MLB the show because I'm watching them. Every I understand day, that because I, in front of I play OOTP <laughs> and I'll do the same thing. I'll be like, wait a minute. This guy is not supposed to be this good. How, 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 is, how is he hitting a grand slam against me right now? Like, what's going on? What am I missing? And then I'll look the guy right. up Why on fan tracks, good? or I'll look him up on Prospectus, or I'll look him on, on any number of the platforms that I subscribe to, and I'm like, you know, where did this guy come from? I do the same thing. I used to play uh, – oh, yeah, I used to I used to play out of the ballpark uh, quite a bit when I had a uh, – I don't have a computer anymore. I only use laptops. Or, well, I don't even use laptops. I use an iPad now. But I used to have a Steam account, and I used to play uh, out of the ballpark. And, uh, yeah, I would I would find players like that. I do want to thank our audience and our listeners. Uh, we really do appreciate you coming in here. Thank you, Chris. Uh, always appreciate having the opportunity to talk to somebody who likes fantasy sports as much as I do. Uh, if you want to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Dynasty Diner Pod. And you can also email us, DynastyDinerPod at gmail.com. We would love to hear some feedback from you guys. Uh, please subscribe to us uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's very important that we know that we have people listening. Take the time, rate and review uh, like we did earlier this evening. 
Uh, I mentioned that review that we got on, on Apple Podcasts. It was our first review and our first rating, and we really do appreciate that. Thank you, Vin, again. We're hoping to put out a new episode every week and take the time to visit DynastySportsEmpire.com today. Check out all of our written and audio content. And you can also use that site to join a league. And they are a lot of fun. And we have a great community. We've talked about that before. You know, make the effort, ask questions, join our community, find out what it is to really get involved in these dynasty leagues and keeper leagues. For our dynasty leagues, I mean, I I love being in the same league with people for, you know, five, six, eight, 10, 12 years you know, drafting kids in rookie ball and watching them come up and, you know, stashing them for five, six years and then having them hit big time in the in the major leagues. It's, it's a lot of fun. In closing, have a really great day, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We know we went a little bit long today, but we think it was worth it. Remember to build your fantasy sports dynasty empire and crush the competition. And we look forward to having you back with us on our next episode. Thank you. You've been listening to The Dynasty Diner, a proud member of the Dynasty Sports Empire family of podcasts.